Welcome to the Choose You Now podcast. I'm your host, Juliana Hever. Today, I am honored to introduce my guest. T. Colin Campbell has been at the forefront of nutrition education and research. In fact, I dubbed him the father of modern nutrition because he is such a pioneer. His expertise and scientific interests encompass relationships between diet and disease, particularly the causation of cancer. His legacy, The China Project, is one of the most comprehensive studies of health and nutrition ever conducted and inspired his best-selling book, The China Study. Dr. Campbell is the Jacob Gould Shorman Professor Emeritus of Nutritional Biochemistry at Cornell University. He's also the founder of the highly acclaimed plant-based nutrition certificate program through eCornell, and he serves as the chairman of the board for T. Colin Campbell Center for Nutrition Studies. I'm so excited to introduce him, and I think you will enjoy this interview. Hello, Dr. T. Colin Campbell. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So we have a long history of talking together about nutrition, and I've interviewed you for various things, my movie, my TV show, everything, and I've learned so much from you. And about 10 or so years ago, I published, I think it was my first book where I dubbed you The Father of Modern Nutrition. And I say that because you are the epitome of what this podcast is all about. You are, you are the essence of choosing you now because you have persisted on paving a path despite all the naysayers that were consistently around you. And I'm honored to talk to you today because you finally wrote this book that, I mean, all your books have been extraordinary, but you have this new book called The Future of Nutrition. And I would love to hear about why you wrote this book how it's been for you to choose yourself, and where are you now? So we could start with just what it's been like to, in those moments when everyone said, no, protein, no, whatever it was that you fought against for so many decades, what was it like for you to go against the grain? It's a good question. I even asked myself that. Um, I have to say the one thing that occurred to me is part of who I am, I guess, is my father. My father only had a couple of years of uh, education, formal education. Uh, he was all about me getting an education and first to go to college, all that sort of stuff. But basically, he was a very honorable man in the community. And he said, just remember, when you get big, he says, uh, tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. That never left me. Um, and it's just part of who I am, I guess. I tried hard. And so when I saw something that didn't, didn't actually come out the way I thought it might, it was against my own sort of views, but there was, I only had one course to follow, and that was to tell it as I saw it. And uh, yeah, and then on, in addition, I had a lot of really nice people who were sort of helping me uh, sort of get into college, to go to graduate school, so forth and so on. Um, and uh, so I owe a lot of everything to a lot of other people. So I, I could do nothing but to tell what I thought was the truth, period. That was it. It's not easy. It's very, it's very difficult to stand your ground with all of that, especially I think, I think nutrition is a real unique field because everybody eats and therefore everybody is an expert on food. And they think that, you know, everyone has a commentary about what you should or shouldn't be eating. Everyone. It's just, it's kind of an interesting thing because it's such an intimate, you know, part of all of our lives. But you have stayed the course in so many different ways. So tell us what you wanted to say what was, why did you want to write this book about the future of nutrition? 
Well, I think the main thing was that when I had my, you know, I was trained in, in a way to actually do research to prove that animal protein is the best thing going. Uh, that's what I taught uh, myself, you know, to the students, if you will. I was in the Philippines with that uh, responsibility then to coordinate a program and feeding malnourished children. And uh, that was my, almost my first experience of being in a really, really desperately poor area. Uh, children needed the food, and the idea was to make sure they got enough protein. And that usually meant animal-based protein, high-quality protein, if you will. Um, and so I saw something that uh, didn't square with that. I saw some evidence that uh, the children, the few children of the families consuming the most protein, they seemed to have a higher risk of liver cancer, which is another area of mine. And so uh, I was pre presented with a dilemma. Does feeding protein increase liver cancer? Uh, there was an experimental animal model data that came out at the time suggested that was true. Uh, so I had to go down that line to, to test, and I got some money from NIH that continued for many years, which got some generous funding, just to see whether that was true. And that's what I showed. It was true. Um, and uh, it, it, was, uh, it was challenging, to say the least, uh, to believe that, but there it was. And uh, I learned a lot from those, that experimentation you know, testing how it works, why it works, what's the mechanism, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, as time went on, I just kept pulling, peeling off uh, one layer after another of ideas that challenged uh, basically what we tended to believe and think, you know, turning cancer on or off, reversing and so forth like that. So um, You could easily I, argue I, that protein is the most controversial, con or actually everyone is very strong on the other belief system. Like you call it, what do you call it? The, the, the cult of, what do you, there's a, the way you say it in the book a few times, the cult oh, of yeah. animal protein. <laughs> yeah, so something like that, that's right. It is, it is a cult, to be honest. It is, it. it is, and yet you still persist. So I, I grabbed a few quotes from your incredible book. I think everyone should read it. It's really important. Um, and I think some, I wanted to kind of pull together some of the ideas that are relevant to choosing you now and, and persisting despite resistance, because that's a real challenge in today's society, of course, actually always. So I just wanted to read this quote from your book. You said, we are often unaware of groupthink's control over us. It's easy to see the fault in another group, but not so easy in our own. Assuming we could even spot all the limiting parameters that govern our groups, the repercussions of speaking out are often serious and unavoidable. Tell us about that. Yes. The word I like uh, to describe that in general is paradigm. You know, we, we, we live basically in a society where we tend to believe things we do, common knowledge, if you will. Uh, and uh, then we just we suddenly see something that doesn't square with that. It's hard to get out of that society because if you say the, the opposite of what everybody believes and what you tend to believe yourselves, uh, you're inviting problems. You're inviting criticism. And uh, nonetheless, you still, have to, you still have to follow what the facts are. Um, yeah, it, it was challenging, especially when I was involved in panel discussions or, you know, in uh, government policy positions and stuff like that to uh, kind of stand up against that, that, uh, that trend. And so the paradigm is, is something that is just a general understanding that the public has across the, across the land. It's not really a conspiracy necessarily, it's a, it's a paradigm. And uh, we, we tend not to know what we don't know. <laughs> well, we don't know, it's just that simple. We don't challenge, we don't stop and think about, gosh, is there something here I'm missing kind of thing? And if it's 
It, so it's uh, it's a challenge. And then you've got that information, and once you know, you can't unknow, and then you're fighting for it, and then you have That's to right. stay the course because you know a lot of people just put on the blinders and say, ah, "I'm just going to pretend I didn't see that because it just doesn't match the paradigm." Like you're saying that I know, and it would challenge too much of the status quo to go the other way. That's right. Right. But you know, actually it became kind of exciting as I was going through these things because I happened to start seeing something in a biochemical sense, if you will, primarily, but also in a practical sense. I started seeing things that were, as I started thinking about, geez, this is kind of exciting. This might prove to be something interesting. And it was. Tell us about that. Well, the first thing I think that I ran across was this idea of of uh, this was experimental animal literature at the time, not literature, but studies. Um, I, I found that high feeding of animal protein turned on cancer, of all things. It was a special kind of cancer, so I couldn't go too far out in the limb on that one, but there it was. And then it could turn it on and turn it off. I said, wait a minute, this, this is really challenging something pretty fundamental because cancer is generally considered to be a genetic disease. If we've got the genes, we're going to get the cancer, if you will, different kinds of cancer. And what I was seeing there suddenly was that, no, even if you have the genes, uh, that you're not necessarily going to get the cancer if you eat the right kind of food, you know, experience the right kind of nutrition. That was an exciting proposition. I mean, that was a challenge, a whole system that we lived with. And uh, that was one thing. Uh, and then when I started doing research with my students, I got to give a credit to them too as graduate school. but. We started doing experiments and I was looking for the explanation of why this works. You know, what is the mechanism? Because in theory, if we could understand what the biochemical mechanism is, then we might in theory find a chemical or drug, if you will, to block that. That's the conventional way of thinking. And so I started looking for mechanisms and I found one, I found a second, found a third, on and on and on. I finally got about 10 different kinds of mechanisms, all of them seemingly independent, some of them up, some of them down. But the really fascinating thing was that all these mechanisms were going in a direction all in one to one endpoint. They were all supporting the development of cancer. That was a really exciting thing. I, I, I really got excited about that because then, then you sort of ask yourself, maybe I could look for another five or 10 mechanisms. I was satisfied at that, t- at that point in time, 10 straight uh, searches for mechanisms over a period of 10, 12 years all pointing in the same direction uh, to create the same effect. And so I was asking myself, how does this really work? You know, who, who's the director here? What's, what's the charge? Uh, who's right. in charge? I, I finally decided, you know, this is a reflection of nature. This is a reflection of nature. Nature is infinitely complex in a biochemical sense. I really mean that with that word infinite, infinitely complex. But somehow nature is actually managing things with this marvelous collection of all kinds of you know, opportunities and events and substances to actually organize all of that, this very complex system, and create a response the way it wants to. And nature tries to keep us healthy, quite frankly. And you actually, the perfect quote, you quoted Marilyn Fry in your book, and you said that it's, that she says, it seems sometimes that people fill their eyes with things seen microscopically in order to not see macroscopically. And I think that what you're saying now and in context of this quote is basically the thesis of your book whole. And you have such a gorgeous explanation of this complexity and the intricacies and the synergy. And I just think that it's, it just, and you show how we see things at little, a little detail, but there's so much more 
to the picture. That would, would make more sense because we don't have so many answers when we think about health or medicine or nutrition. There's so much more to the story. Absolutely. When, when, we, when you come to that realization, as I did, and obviously you do too, I'm sure, uh, when, when all of these things are sort of working together to produce a certain response, and then you sort let's say cancer, for example, then you come and say, hey, this is working for heart disease too. This is working for diabetes. This is working for what we call different diseases. And you start, you see this expansive sort of uh, array of uh, responses uh, in, in a way that uh, nature is treating all of these responses in the same way when it comes to the question concerning nutrition. When we eat the right diet, you know, we're going to, across the board, it will all have a tendency to prevent those serious diseases, or if we already have them. This is another exciting uh, <laughs> discovery in a sense, to, to see that, that we could actually reverse it with the same formula. You just change, the, you know, change it around from um, animal food, if you will, to plant food. I mean, I, I did that in the lab to some extent, and then, of course, I met my good friend, uh, John, uh, uh, S Dr. Esselton, and uh, I met... Uh, uh, Dr. McDougall and Dr. Ornish in, in those early days, they contacted, contact, contacted me because they saw an article in the New York Times about my work. And so uh, they were working with real humans, and they were seeing reversal of heart disease in, in their case. Uh, and I said, wow, this all fits. Right. Seen, well, the research is actually translating in a clinical setting. That's right. It just went from the lab to the clinic in their hands. And uh, so I, I didn't like have proof exactly of concept. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't have exactly the same explanation for why we were getting the results that they may have preferred at the time. But I was thinking more of in the context of the holism, if you will, you know, everything working in a grand scheme of things like a symphony, uh, just sort of affecting all these various and sundry health problems we may have or have. So, Colin. You spend so much time researching and writing and speaking and all of that. What do you do for yourself? What do you do to choose yourself personally, if you don't mind sharing? Well, I had a wife, for starters. <laughs> uh, no, it, you know, I, I was running across this uh, to some extent in the late 1970s, uh, you know, in the uh, boardrooms and on the lab and stuff like that. And I, we started to see some results that were kind of promising, exciting. So we started changing our diet. Karen really got into this. We had children. We had children at that time, four of them, at, you know, at that, right at that point in time. Um, and so she obviously is interested in making sure our kids get the right food. She started changing the diet, you know, creating some new dishes and that sort of thing. And we went through that process over a period of about eight, 10 years, I guess, until we finally arrived at the point we were the whole way. And uh, so for myself, you're asking what did I do for myself, I just ate her food. <laughs> so uh, it, 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 that's, that was the name of it. I mean, it had a personal side to it, obviously. Uh, I, I started discovering, too, for my own self, the way, the feeling that you have when you re start really feeling healthy, even healthier than you thought you could be. Right. And you, ex you exercise. I mean, I haven't talked to you in a while. I mean, you had a big birthday this week. Happy birthday. Thank you. And are you still running and very, you were so active. Every time I see you, you're very active. Yeah, I just had a birthday. And I, I can say I'm 87. I don't use drugs. Uh, and that's another story now later in my life that comes to the front too that reminds me. Uh, 
there's a lot of heart disease in my own family, on my side of the family with my dad and his brother and my grandfather. I've outlet them all about 30, by about 30 years. Um, and uh, not quite in case one, but in any case, my on my wife's side, she had cancer in her family. And she actually had diagnosed, been diagnosed with one cancer in particular, advanced melanoma, which is pretty serious. And then she has- Karen was? Karen was, yes. I didn't know that. Oh my gosh. Well, in that case, that was an interesting experience because she goes, she gets diagnosed with this. We're wondering, what the heck is this? We're already down that road, you know, doing the right thing. We thought getting close to it, but not, not the whole way. And so the pathologist would let me see under the microscope what he was looking at to diagnose that, that condition. So the doctor right away, in the usual way, he comes in the oncologist. He had a date set for her to go into the chemotherapy, if you will. Uh, also to take out her lymph glands because it spread to her lymph glands. It was pretty serious. Yes. And, uh, she, and uh, so he's setting up the date and she just told him, I'm not doing it. Well, the guy freaked out. I have to say, he just thought that was awful. He said, you come back here in six months, I won't be able to do anything for you. I mean, it was really pretty ugly. And I was just sitting there at the time and he didn't know my reputation in, in this field. I was just listening. I couldn't believe what was happening. But she went against the grade, did nothing, did nothing. That was 16 years later. Now, 16 years later, no problems. Oh, so, thank goodness. Uh, so, and then that's just an anecdotal story, obviously. Uh, can't make a lot of it, but it made something, made some difference to me. Because it's cancer on her side, heart disease, on, heart disease on my side. I'm 87, she's 80. Neither one of us take drugs. Wow. I mean, that says a lot. <laughs> that really does. That's Most right. people Most at your age are probably pharmacy at this point. That's right. That's what they are. Polypharmacy, I think the name of it is. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So I have one more question about that. Like if you, there's a lot of people out there that, well, you have this beautiful concept in your book. You say you don't want to have a call to action like in most books, but you do call for something that is exactly on the choose you now concept. It is about remembering your own agency. And you say to begin with your own family and your own health as you did yourself. And as much as our society extols the importance of finding good role models, the inward facing labor of becoming a good role model, a potent form of activism is too often overlooked. And so I like to say this, like be a lighthouse, not a tugboat, but that is about choose you now. So what would you say, how would you say that if for the people out there that are listening and they want to just do something in that mode and, and they want to choose themselves now, what would you, Dr. T. Colin Campbell, suggest? Well, I would suggest, them, of course, to change the diet and, and the faster, the, so the sooner, the better. Some people can't go the whole way straight off. We all know that. It's difficult. And that's understandable it's for me, too. Uh, and uh, I think uh, but they, they need to be uh, armed with the information. They need to be, under, you know, they really need to understand that the science really does support this change. No question about that. Uh, and going the whole way uh, as soon as they can is, is also a good idea because, um, and oftentimes, and of course, you know this as a dietitian as well as anyone, uh, that is when the people make change, um, it may take a month or two uh, at least a couple of months or so, when we see our taste preferences change. I think that's one, one part of the equation that a lot of people don't hear. The first reaction that I'm talking about people don't want to change. Basically, they're used to their food. And I think, uh, quite frankly, if they kind of believe the information first and they do want health, for sure, 
um, just have some patience. Stay with it. Because there's sooner or later, and I say at least a month or two maybe, uh, that new food, you crave a salad. You really feel good. And, and all of a sudden, this food that you thought, well, I never quite ate it this way before, but gosh, this is good. And, and yes. when you get there, now all of a sudden, you're in a, you're a, new, aware, a new awareness, new world. Yes. I and see that all the time with my clients. It's true. It takes a few weeks. And then all of a sudden, like a sweet potato tastes like candy. And all of, you start craving all this deliciousness. And you feel so much better. So it's like this beautiful, self-fulfilling cycle where it's like you feel better, so you want to do it more. And then you feel better, and you keep going. And you're, you're, a, you're a great person to say that, by the way. I mean, you're being a dietitian as you are uh, and counseling people. Uh, yeah, I mean, did, so your future patients of my acquaintances and that sort of thing, I think it's good to let them know there's light at the end of the tunnel. Yes. <laughs> they really, for those who suffer a tunnel, I mean, some people, they just gravitate right into it. And, you know, it's not too hard for them. Yes. But that's the way it is. <laughs> that's the way it is. Well, Colin, I can't thank you enough for being here. I cannot thank you enough for your world-changing work. I really do see you as the father of modern nutrition. You've paved a path. The world is changing, and you are responsible for so much of it. So thank you so much for being here and for everything you, want, you do. You want to be my agent for my critics? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I do, and I am. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's kind of challenging, but it's a great, great feeling to know this and I, I'm really interested now that to get the society at the national level to, you know for this information to be offered to the public as something serious. Do you think it starts with the people making these changes or do you think like how do we get that to that level because you've been at all of those different you've talked to all of those groups over decades so what what do you think is the how are we going to do this? Well, it's of happening. I yeah, spent a lot of time in national policy development, sitting around the table, talking to others, and that sort of thing. I, I see how national guidelines are formulated, how information is created for the public, you know, based on such and such a science. It's not pretty. It is biased. Uh, and uh, so then you find out that doctors aren't trained in this area. They're not paid adequately for even working with their patients this way. Uh, and uh, so I, my suggestion is that the governmental level uh, they first got to know that this really works, be convinced. Uh, it's still a challenge politically and economically to make that kind of change. But for God's sake, they've got to start telling the truth. You know, and when, when policy development, uh, dietary guidelines, for example, or other kinds of uh, uh, reports of that sort, you know, that are examined fairly closely by the so-called academics, They've got to tell it like it is. Let people make the decision for themselves what they want. I, I'm, I'm, you, you, you probably have a better experience about this than I, but I, I think people are just generally interested in this once they know it, but they tend not to know it. Yes. But again, it comes like down to what you said. It's just you have to be, you have to remember your own agency. And all we could do is change ourselves. I always say you could lead a human to healthy, but you can't make them eat. But it begins with the one person at a time. And in the last, look at how what's happened in the last 15 years. It's just, it's it's going. It's moving that direction. Yes, we used to yes, we used to speak to, a, we used to know a few doctors that we would speak to. Now there are thousands of doctors that show up at these conferences. And that's because the patients brought it to the doctors and the information is spreading. And I think it's it's never been so exciting as it is now. Right, it is, and all that I recall too, and I'm sure you do too. Uh, there were no cookbooks in this area. Right, 
when I first got involved in it. Now you've got yours. Our daughter and daughter always have theirs. I mean, now there's lots of books out there. There's infinite information, infinite, infinite, delicious food, infinite information. It's just, it's really exciting. And mostly you are at the core of all of this. So I know you coined whole food plant-based. I don't know how many people know that, but you're the one that started that. And it's now a thing. It's on labels. It's at fast food restaurants. It's everywhere. Yeah. I've seen that. I like the word whole in there too, somehow, but yes, you know, the whole food is the best of all rather than taking bits and pieces, trying to mat, put it together into a convenience food of some sort. Uh, absolutely. And that's why everyone needs to read your books, the, all of them, Whole, China Study, The Future of Nutrition. Thank you so much, Colin. Keep up your amazing work. Thank you for everything. Okay. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's great. One of my favorite things I've learned from Colin over the years is that concept of holism. And it just is the most beautiful, extraordinary concept to think about how synergistic our worlds and our bodies and every organism is together. And I think it's just so beautiful. And then the food and how intimate it is when we eat that food and it becomes us. If you are inspired and enjoy the Choose You Now podcast, please subscribe to the show, rate and review us on iTunes, and send us emails with questions and comments at chooseyounowpodcast at gmail.com. For nutrition services and more information, visit me at plantbaseddietitian.com. I invite you to choose yourself now, and I'm signing off with lots of leafy green love.